0: birthday today to mk freeland of windsor heights to james severino of granger to christine l simpson of west des moines happy birthday to all of you you are joined in your birthday today by actor estelle parsons who turns 96 by comedian and singer dick smothers who turns 85 and by newscaster judy rudolph who turns 77 today so happy birthday to everyone You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now, here's Rachel with our obituaries.
1: There is one death notice Uh, on the page today, and then two obituaries. The death notice is Donald Reardon of Toledo, who died at age 85 on the 18th of November. Then this obituary for Donna K. Manning from Clive. Donna K. Manning, devoted wife, beloved mother, cherished grandmother, loyal family member, and friend died peacefully on November 18, 2023, at home after a long and brave battle with cancer that started with breast cancer. In the six weeks leading up to her passing, Donna was lovingly cared for by her two sons, Michael Dean Manning and Corey Edward Manning. Born in Des Moines, Iowa on December twenty seventh, 1946, Donna was the daughter of Frank and Marion Medici, and the sister of Karen Genizer, She is survived by two sons, two grandchildren, Maxwell and Jillian, and two amazing daughters-in-law, Jody Sue and Tina Marie. Her faithful dog, Charlie, a nephew, Kendall, and his children, Alex and Nick, a niece, Kelly, and her children, Cole, Caleb, and Caitlin, and brothers and sisters-in-law, Matt and Sharon Manning, Jackie Manning, Bob Manning, Jan and Rick Bice, Mary Jane Manning, Frank Manning, and Ann Steins, Barbie and Don Harney, as scores of nieces and nephews. At an early age, Donna exhibited an aptitude for performance, particularly music and dance, eventually becoming a classically trained pianist, studying at the University of Iowa She had a beautiful singing voice and generously shared her talents by playing the piano and organ at thousands of church services and countless weddings and funerals. In 1966, Donna married her soulmate and life partner, Michael Matt Manning. They enjoyed 49 years of marriage and adventure until Mike's death in 2015. Soon after they were married, Mike was drafted to serve in the Vietnam War. And after they married, the couple lived in Virginia, where they welcomed their first son, Dean. Donna describes those years in Virginia as some of the best of their marriage because the two of them just had each other. Donna was a dedicated public servant. She worked for the Polk County Conservation Board at Jester Park. Initially, she just wanted to work long enough to pay off her baby grand piano, But Donna ended up spending 38 years with the conservation board. She worked full time, raised two sons, supported her husband in his endeavors, and somehow managed to put a meal on the table every night. In retirement, Donna enjoyed relaxing at home with Charlie and traveling to California and South Carolina to visit her sons and grandchildren and attend their sporting events and dance recitals. Donna loved her home state of Iowa. She endeavored to visit every county seat in the state with Charlie in tow. She made it to 83 of Iowa's 99 counties. Donna will be remembered for her authenticity, her integrity, and her love of family and country. She loved playing cards, navigating a solitaire game on her iPad while simultaneously watching the news and talking on the phone and chatting with family and friends. Donna's family wishes to thank the staff at Medical Oncology and Hematology Associates, um, also known as Mission Cancer Plus Blood, and Dr. Angela Sandre and her right hand, Ramona Ferrari. Their care for Donna approached the divine. And additional thanks go out to Shelby and Sam at Mercy Hospice. Their support, expertise, and advice to Dean and Corey over the past several weeks was critical to Donna's comfort. And finally, a special thanks goes to Trevis, whose dogged attendance at Donna's weekly appointments in Dean and Corey's absence ensured that she was very well cared for. The family will receive friends at Assumption Catholic Church in Granger, where a visitation will take place on Tuesday, November twenty-first, from 11 to 1, followed by a funeral service at 1 p.m. Memorial contributions may be, may be made to the Animal, Animal Rescue League of Iowa. Online condolences are welcomed at islescares.com. And then this short obituary for Fred and Mary Lehman from Des Moines. Fred and Mary were, Lehman were called to heaven on Sunday, November 12, 2023, due to injuries sustained in an automobile accident. Visitation will be held Tuesday, November 21st, from 5 to 8 p.m. at New Hope Assembly of God in Urbandale. Funeral services will be Wednesday, November 22nd at 10.30 a.m., also at the church, followed by burial at Fairview Cemetery in Madrid. Services will be live-streamed, and full obituary can be found at the Hamilton's Funeral Home website. And now we'll return to
0: the front page section to pick up a couple more articles here. The first uh, is is related to the article that we read earlier about the Waukee Kinship Brewery Foreclosure. The headline here reads, Des Moines Metro Loses uh, Barbarian, a Fine Dining Restaurant. Barbarian, the tasting menu restaurant inside Kinship Brewing Company in Waukee, has permanently closed. Lincoln Savings Bank filed for foreclosure against Kinship Brewing at 255 Northwest Sunset Drive in Waukee on October 26. The brewery and its holding company, Sunrise Drive Acquisitions, owe Lincoln Savings Bank almost $6 million, according to the foreclosure action. Twelve full-time employees at the brewery lost their job, according to two sources with knowledge of the Kinship situation. Barbarian opened in January inside Kinship Brewing with a fine dining menu of experimental New American Modern Cuisine. Only about 32 people could dine at the time in the space between the brewery and the large patio area, and reservations often filled as they were posted. Executive Chef Chef Jacob DeMars told the Des Moines Register that he created Barbarian as a dinner series strictly at Kinship and does not plan to move it to a new location. If we had hit December, it would have sold out for a year straight, DeMars said. Barbarian served artfully decorated plates featuring inspired flavor combinations from DeMars, who formerly owned and operated R.I. Restaurant in Windsor Heights. The chef said he would like to start his own restaurant again and may hold some pop-up dinners through the winter, moving away from the exploratory and experimental tasting menus. DeMar's goal, he said, is this, being able to get back into a restaurant where people are coming in and sitting down and they have the same quality services and food and everything's matching that level of service. That's what I want to get back to rather than the dinner series of pop-ups, which I feel I've done for so long. Demar said he reached out to diners with barbarian reservations to tell them that he would alert them to his next venture.
1: Going to a national story, Cases to Define Scope of the Second Amendment. Drug users, nonviolent felons, want justices to restore their gun rights. This is by John Fritzie of USA Today and comes from Washington. Nearly 30 years ago, a Pennsylvania man falsified his income on an application for food stamps. Because of it, he lost his ability to own a gun for the rest of his life. Last year, in Mississippi, another man was pulled over for driving without a license plate. When police discovered marijuana and a loaded rifle in his car, they charged him with violating a law that bans drug users from owning a gun. Both men now have cases before the Supreme Court, with sweeping implications for the Second Amendment. Seventeen months after the nation's highest court handed down a landmark decision that redefined the standard used to judge gun restrictions, the Biden administration has queued up several cases on a host of federal gun laws, including those dealing with nonviolent crimes and drug use. The cases are closely tied to one of the most significant disputes already before the justices this term, that is, whether domestic abusers can be barred from owning guns. Advocates on both sides of the gun debate are eager to see how the Supreme Court resolves an appeal from a Texas man, Zaki Rahimi, who violated a law banning guns for people who are the subject of domestic violence restraining orders. Win or lose, and Rahimi appears poised to lose, the court's decision in that case next year could signal how the justices feel about similar laws that block people from accessing guns. The appeals are arriving at a moment of uncertainty uncertainty about just how far the Supreme Court's 6-3 conservative majority is willing to go to roll over controversial gun laws, laws that critics say flout the Second Amendment, but that supporters say are crucial to ensuring American safety. Last year, in a case called NYSRPA versus Bruin, the Supreme Court said gun prohibitions must be grounded in history. Now it's being asked to explain what that means. In the year and a half since the Supreme Court's decision in Bruin, we have seen how dangerous it can be when the gun lobby is emboldened to relitigate even the most common-sense gun safety laws in the court, said Janet Carter, who directs the National Second Amendment practice for the gun control group Everytown Law. Carter will be watching the Supreme Court carefully to see if its opinion in Rahimi will serve as a necessary corrective or whether it will once again put our communities, especially women and families, at risk. Though they are hoping for a different outcome, gun rights groups are watching too. Alan Gottlieb, executive vice president of the Second Amendment Foundation, predicted the court will decide that the federal law at issue in Rahimi can only be applied to people who have been deemed dangerous. That would potentially weaken other gun laws. These cases are just the beginning, Gottlieb said. If the conviction was for a nonviolent crime and the government cannot prove you are a danger to yourself or others, the law as applied is unconstitutional. Brian Range pleaded guilty in 1995 to making false statements about his income to obtain $2,458 of food stamp assistance as he and his wife struggled to raise three children, according to court records. Range was sentenced to probation and ordered to pay back the money, along with a $100 fine. Because the crime was a felony equivalent, a state misdemeanor punishable by up to five years imprisonment. Range is barred from possessing a gun. A federal appeals court in Philadelphia sided with Range this summer, ruling that the government had, quote, not shown that our republic has a long-standing history and tradition of depriving people like Range of their firearms, end quote. The Biden administration appealed, warning that the ruling would flood the courts with felons seeking to restore their gun rights, an outcome that threatens public safety. Even some gun rights groups acknowledge Rahimi, who was involved in five shootings between 2020 and 2021, should not have access to guns. In 2019, Rahimi fired at a passerby who witnessed him dragging his girlfriend through a parking lot. In 2021, he fired into the air when a friend's credit card was declined at a fast food joint. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments in this case on November 7th. Federal law bans people who are the subject of a civil domestic violence restraining order from owning a gun. Studies show a woman is five times more likely to die from domestic violence if the abuser has access to a gun the law bars guns based on two types of restraining orders. First, those in which a judge finds a person poses a credible threat to an intimate partner, partner, and secondly, those that make no such finding but that prohibit the use or attempted use of physical force. Rahimi's case deals with the first type. Another case already pending at the Supreme Court centered on a Kentucky man who police say struck his partner while she was holding their baby, involves the other. Jennifer Becker, director of the National Center on Gun Violence and Relationships at the Battered Women's Justice Project, said she is watching the Rahimi outcome very closely for the potential to affect other lawsuits. She said, this case is not operating in a silo. The reasoning that the court puts forward in its opinion could have implications for other challenges.
0: And a deal on hostage release is still uncertain. Hostage negotiations aimed at producing a multi-day ceasefire in return for the release of some of the estimated 240 people believed held by militants in Gaza were progressing Sunday, but a deal remained uncertain, officials said. The sticking point, honestly, at this stage, are more practical, logistical, not really something to present the call-off of the deal. Qatari Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdurrahman al-Fani, who has been involved in the talks, said at a news briefing, Reports of various deals for the release of dozens of women and children have been circulating for weeks, but thus far only four hostages have been released and one rescued. Still, Deputy U.S. National Security Advisor John Finer said Sunday the talks had reached what he called a very sensitive stage. He said the fate of the hostages remains in an, in, remains an incredibly high priority for President Joe Biden and his entire administration. We're following this minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, and have been over the number of weeks," Feiner told ABC's This Week. Israel has been focused on crushing Hamas since October 7, when Hamas militants made the now-famous raid into Israeli border communities that left more than 1,200 dead and another 240 people captured and taken to Gaza as hostages, Israel said. The Gaza Health Ministry says the Israel's ensuing military campaign has killed more than 12,500 Palestinians. Over 100 Hamas militants have been captured and transferred for questioning in Israel in the last few days, the Israeli military said in a statement. Some operatives disclosed Hamas operating methods and details on tunnel digging and the recruitment process, the military said. The information gained from the interrogations of the terrorists serves the troops who are operating from the air and on the ground in Gaza Strip, the statement said. At least 24 people were reported killed in an Israeli airstrike on a school-turned-shelter for displaced families in northern Gaza, Philippe Lazzarini, Commissioner General of the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, said in a statement on Sunday. He said up to 7,000 people were in the school, which also was hit two weeks ago. At least 12 people were killed and 54 injured in that attack, Lazzarini said. The Israeli military said its troops were active in the area, targeting militants. This is yet another proof that no one and nowhere is safe in Gaza, Lazzarini said in a statement. These acts not only blatantly contravene the rules of war, they also now show a total disregard for humanity. That's an end of the quote from Mr. Lazzarini. The World Health Organization led a team to the embattled Al-Sharif Hospital on Sunday, rescuing 31 premature babies and at least 16 health workers and other staff as Israel continued its devastating military campaign across northern Gaza. It was the second WHO-led mission to the hospital in as many days. On Saturday, WHO officials described the hospital as a death zone, with staffers struggling amid limited supplies of food, water, and power. Mohamed Sakut, director of Gaza Hospitals, said four babies had died at the hospital late last week. Tedros Ananam Gabrizias, WHO's director general, credited the Palestine Red Crescent Society with conducting the evacuations under extremely intense and high-risk conditions, he said. The babies were taken to the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at a maternity hospital in southern Gaza and are expected to go from there to facilities in Egypt. They had dehydration, hypothermia, and sepsis in some cases, Zakut said. Planning is underway to transport the dozens of hospital staff and critically ill patients remaining at the hospital when safe passage can be secured, Tidros said. The hospital has been under siege for weeks amid Israeli claims it was being used by Hamas to stash fighters and weaponry. This Israeli military has responded to the stinging criticisms of its Al-Sharif hospital raid by insisting Hamas uses the sprawling 20-acre complex as a command center and the patients as human shields and posting videos trying to prove the case. One such video Sunday shows what the Israeli military calls, quote, the first very sophisticated shaft, end quote, on hospital grounds, along with several weapons and ammunition cartridges. The Israeli military said the shaft leads to a 180-foot tunnel about 30 feet under the compound and included a staircase, blast-proof door, and a firing hole that could be used by snipers. The Associated Press could not independently verify Israel's findings, which also included a pair of security camera videos showing what the military said were two foreign hostages, one Thai and one Nepalese, taken to the hospital following the October 7 attack. The army also said an independent medical report had determined that a female Israeli soldier, Corporal Noah Marciano, whose body was recovered in Gaza last week, had been killed by Hamas inside the hospital. <coughs> Excuse me. Thousands of Gaza, thousands in Gaza, have been killed in Israeli strikes, and there are severe shortages of food, water, medicine, and fuel in the besieged territory. <coughs> More than two-thirds of Gaza's population of 2.3 million have fled their homes. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, or UNRWA, is struggling to provide basic services to hundreds of thousands of people sheltering in and around schools and other facilities. Seventeen of its facilities have been directly hit, the agency said. Over the weekend, Israel allowed UNRWA to import fuel to continue humanitarian operations for another couple of days and to keep internet and telephone systems running. Israel cut off all fuel imports at the start of the war, causing Gaza's sole power plant and most water treatment systems to shut down. Misery in the embattled territory has worsened in recent days with the arrival of winter, including cold winds and driving rain. President Joe Biden pitched his plan for post-war Gaza and the West Bank in a Washington Post op-ed saying the two Palestinian enclaves should be reunited in what he called ultimately under a revitalized Palestinian authority.
1: In an article from the Nation and World section of USA Today, fentanyl-laced letters delay vote counts. Um, This from the AP and the dateline is Seattle. I've edited a little bit for length because we're closing in on our break. The suspicious letters sent sent to vote centers and government buildings in six states this month were undeniably scary, some containing traces of fentanyl or white powder accompanied by not so veiled threats and dubious political symbols. Harkening back to the anthrax attacks that killed five people in 2001, the mailings are prompting elections officials already frustrated with ongoing harassment and threats to reach out to local police, fire, and health departments for help stocking up on the overdose reversal medication naloxone. Even if there's little risk from incidental contact with the synthetic opioid, having the antidote on hand isn't a bad idea amid an addiction epidemic that is killing more than 100,000 people in the U.S. every year, and it can provide some assurance for stressed ballot workers, election managers say. My team is usually in the direct fire just because we're opening up thousands of millions of ballots, depending on the election, said Eldon Miller who leads the ballot opening staff at King County Elections in Seattle, which stocked up on naloxone after receiving a fentanyl-laced letter in August. I always say to my team, your safety is my utmost importance. The letters were sent this month to vote centers or government buildings in six states, Georgia, Nevada, California, Oregon, Washington, and Kansas, Some were intercepted before they arrived, but others were delivered, prompting evacuations and delaying vote counts in local elections. The FBI and U.S. Postal Inspection Service are investigating. Fentanyl, an opioid that can be 50 times as powerful as the same amount of heroin is driving, an overdose crisis as it is pressed into pills or mixed into other drugs. Briefly touching it cannot cause an overdose, and researchers have found the risk of fatal overdose from accidental exposure is low, unlike with powdered anthrax that can float in the air and cause deadly infections when inhaled. We, I hope we encourage people to not hurt election officials, said Ann Dover, the elections director in suburban Atlanta's Cherokee County, which did not receive a suspicious letter. A lot of people are leaving the field. It's not just threats of physical harm. There's a lot of emotional and psychological abuse. Dover reached out this month to fire department officials who provided Narcan, the nasal spray version of naloxone. Naloxone can be obtained over-the-counter and driven to people, given to people of all ages. It does not harm people who do not have opioids in their system. Dover's office also is taking new precautions with mail, leaving it in a particular spot and having one person designated to open it, wearing gloves and a mask. The office of Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger said this week that it will provide naloxone to any of the state's 159 counties after a letter intercepted on its way to election officials in Atlanta's Fulton County tested positive for opioids. Condemning the letters, Raffensperger noted one of his sons died of a fentanyl overdose about five years ago. We know how deadly this stuff is. Maya Do co-director of Remedy Alliance for the People, which launched last year to provide low-cost or free naloxone to community-based harm reduction programs, said governments should be more focused on providing the antidote to those who work with people likely to overdose. There is no shortage of naloxone, which is available online and at some pharmacies, but its distribution leaves something to be desired, Do Simpkins said. It is an absolute gross misuse of resources to spend money on ensuring that election officials have naloxone, she said, especially because the actual appropriate and evidence-based intervention for a naloxone distribution is underfunded and under-resourced. Chris Anderson, the election supervisor in Seminole County, Florida, said, His office hasn't received any envelopes containing fentanyl in the mail but obtained several doses of narcan this month from the fire department which said it had plenty of supply we had immediately we can immediately save a life with those anderson said
0: and we'll wrap up this shift with a few shorts from the states surrounding us. In Illinois, out this out of Chicago, iconic music producer Quincy Jones and entertainers Jennifer Hudson and Chance the Rapper are now co-owners of the historic Remova Theater on the city's south side. The Remova had been closed for nearly four decades. And in Nebraska... Governor Jim Pillen has appointed fellow Republican and former State Board of Education member Fred Meyer to fill a vacant legislative seat representing eight central Nebraska counties. In Columbia, Missouri, two transgender boys are suing the University of Missouri over its decision to stop providing gender-affirming care to minors over concerns that a new state law could create legal issues for doctors. From South Dakota, Pine Ridge, the leader of a tribe says that he will declare a state of emergency on a reservation because of rampant crime. Oglala Sioux President Frank Starr comes out. That would—that's his name. Starr, I'm sorry. Sioux President Frank Starr comes out, says the declaration for the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation is a result of the U.S. government's inadequate funding for law enforcement. And this from Madison, Wisconsin, the state Senate approved a bill that would spend tens of millions of dollars to combat pollution from PFAS chemicals. The Republican-authored measure would create grants to help municipalities and landowners test for PFAS in water treatment plants and wells. Finally, from Kansas... From the town of Girard, the American Civil Liberties Union says a grade school forced an eight-year-old Native American boy to cut off his hair after he grew it out for cultural reasons. The ACLU demanded the district rescind a policy at the elementary school that bars long hair for boys, alleging it violates state and federal laws. Well, for the last 90 minutes... Your readers have been Rachel Mithelman and me, Twyla Glenn. It's been our pleasure to read for you. And now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
2: Welcome back. Your new readers are Carol Lockhart and Jeff Cassett. We'll continue with articles, uh, the opinion page actually, from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Here's Carol.
3: Thank you, Jeff. Jennifer canales uh is the contributor to our first opinion today. It's entitled, Peace Officers Versus People Who Look Like Me. Do you think the local dog catcher should have the power to detain and deport people? That's exactly what Texas wants to allow under legislation passed Tuesday. At Governor Greg Allbot's, Abbott's direction, lawmakers introduced new legislation giving peace officers from the Chief of State police all the way down to the local fire marshal, the unbridled power to apprehend and arrest people on the mere assumption of their immigration status. The bill then allows for magistrate judges to decide whether to deport immigrants. Let's just say it out loud. Once Abbott signs this into law, it will be open season on black and brown people in Texas because most immigrants coming to the United States through the southern border are from Central and South America and the Caribbean islands. Any black or brown person in Texas could be stopped, questioned, and arrested just because of the color of their skin. Operation Lone Star is wasteful and dangerous. This is Abbott's fourth attempt at passing the legislation, and a $1.5 billion border wall funding bill. It now joins, on the governor's desk, a carelessly crafted legislation that could saddle citizens with 10-year prison sentences for, quote, smuggling merely for driving their cousins or neighbors to the store or to the doctor. Don't listen to those who say these measures are only intended to keep migrants from entering Texas, We need to call these new laws what they are. Craven attempts to expand the unwieldy, wasteful, and dangerous Operation Lone Star. Since 2021, Abbott's border regime has terrorized migrants, property owners, and communities alike up and down the southern border. In the past year alone, at least two people have died crossing the Rio Grande near the governor's razor wire and water buoys, and a whistleblower from Abbott's own state police force came forward about vile directives to push migrants back into the river and withhold drinking water. The state's cruelty knows no bounds. After Border Patrol agents cut through concertina wire to aid migrants, Texas sued the federal government for tampering with state property. These measures turn Texas back to its Wild West days, to the peril of black and brown Texans, regardless of immigration status. Abbott has turned my beloved Texas into his personal kingdom of terror, while people who look like me are subject to a different class of justice. Meanwhile, white supremacist and racist views are allowed to run rampant and, in some factions of the Republican Party, are welcomed. With open arms, these legislations are plainly unconstitutional, an attempt to transfer Federal Immigration Enforcement Authority to state police forces. More than that, they are terrifying to people like me, like my family, like my neighbors. I'm afraid that I could be stopped at any point during my day by a law enforcement officer who thinks I don't belong here. I'm afraid for my elderly Latina neighbor, who has to drive to weekly doctor appointments across town. It's time for everyone in our state, those who live here, those who own businesses here, those who vote here, to seriously reflect about the kind of state we want Texas to be. We must come together to fight for the Texas we love, the one that is only made stronger, more vibrant, and more interesting for its diversity. Unite for the heart and soul of Texas and its motto of friendship. The time to act is now. We have to stop this hateful legislation before it becomes the law of the land. Call your lawmakers, both state and federal, and make your voice heard. Texas must stop propping up the failed, wasteful, and cruel Operation Lone Star, and reinvest the billions upon billions of dollars into our communities, our schools, our roads, our utilities, and the grid. Ending this bloated regime will also require renewed partnership from our allies in Congress and in the White House. The federal government must leverage every tool and tactic at its disposal to stop the havoc Texas is wreaking on our border communities and must investigate every instance of Texas diverting federal funds to support Operation Lone Star. We ask our fellow Texans this. Do we want to live in a state where our leaders continue to embrace racist, hateful, and white supremacist policies? Or do we want to be unified and stand up to make sure the heart and soul of Texas lives up to our state motto of Friendship? I know which version of this state I want to live in, and I know that a better way forward is possible. The Immigrant Legal Resource Center and our partners will continue to fight this fight, whether in the courtroom, at the Capitol, or in our flourishing border communities. Join us and demand better for the state we all love. Our author today, Jennifer Canales-Pelez, is a policy attorney and a strategist for the ILRC based in Houston. And now we'll go back to Jack Jeff Cassett.
2: Sick bus drivers add to alarming anti-Semitism. There's a pending piece by Ingrid Jox, who is a USA Today columnist. She writes On Tuesday, 900 Metro Detroit residents flew on chartered planes to participate in the March for Israel at the nation's capital. All they wanted to do was show their support for Israel and call for the release of the more than 200 hostages held by the terrorist group Hamas. They also wanted to stand against the rise in anti-Semitism and incidents of violence against Jews since Hamas attacked Israel and slaughtered more than 1,200 people on October 7th, Nearly 300,000 people from around the country showed up Tuesday to support Israel. That message is desperately needed. Case in point, many in the group from Michigan didn't get any farther than the tarmac of the airport outside Washington because of anti-Semitism. The buses arranged by the Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Detroit to take the group from Dulles International Airport to the National Mall didn't show up. Why? Because once the drivers found out they were picking up who they were picking up, they called in sick. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out what happened. This was the It was a peaceful march with nothing negative or violent, just an attempt to share our values and viewpoint in a normal American way, said Mark Miller, senior rabbi at Temple Beth L. in Bloomfield Township, as he told the Detroit Free Press. He said, and we were prevented from doing that by people who harbor hatred of us. It would be bad enough if this were an isolated incident, but it's not. It's part of a much larger trend that must have been brewing for a long time. This month, a Jewish-owned New York City coffee shop nearly had to shut its doors after most of its baristas quit because of the business support of Israel. It was heartening, however, to see the Jewish community's response. Many volunteered to work shifts, and others stood in line around the block to buy something. Last month, an ice cream shop owned by a Jewish woman was vandalized in San Francisco. The perpetrators broke out the store's front windows and left pro-Palestinian and anti-Semitic graffiti. So much for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Since Hamas attacked and killed innocent civilians last month, the impulse at colleges, including top ones like Harvard and Cornell, was for students and professors to blame Israel. Jewish students at many U.S. universities don't feel safe. Our society constantly pits one group against another, whether it's dealing with race, sex, or gender. It's a big part of what conservatives mean when they talk about woke ideology in classrooms and workplaces. In this worldview, there is always an oppressor, and those they are purportedly oppressing. Today's young people have bought into the argument that Israelis are the oppressors, the colonizers of Gaza and the Palestinians who live there. In a culture where discrimination is supposedly taboo and diversity, equity, and inclusion is echoed everywhere, it's startling how easily people justify their open discrimination against Jews. Last month, FBI Director Christopher Wray told senators that anti-Semitism is reaching historic levels in America after Hamas' October 7th attack on Israel, and that Jewish Americans are now much more likely to be the target of religious-based hate crimes. Similarly, Anti-Defamation League director and CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said recently that there has been a 388% increase in anti-Semitic incidents in America since last month. Let's call out the haters. US Muslims have also reported a sharp increase in threats and bias. The Council on American-Islamic Relations has reported receiving more than three times as many complaints about bias and requests for help from Muslim Americans from October 7th to November 4th than in any normal month. Even a member of Congress recently got in trouble for anti-Semitic remarks. Michigan Representative Rashida Tlaib, who is Palestinian-American, earned a rare censure from her colleagues, including fellow Democrats, for repeating a slogan that is a rallying cry for the destruction of the state of Israel and genocide of the Jewish people. It's alarming to see anti-Semitism on display so broadly in this country. It must be called out for what it is.
3: Carol? Thank you, Jeff, and on to the sports pages, starting with the sports on TV, and this is for today, Monday, November 20th. Oh, and um, all the times I'm going to give you are Eastern Standard Times, so uh, you'll have to deduct an hour for ours on ESPN2, Maui Invitational, Tennessee versus Syracuse. Quarterfinal, uh, it will be played in Honolulu. At 4.30 p.m. on ESPNU, uh, S-A-A-T-V-A Empire Classic, TBD, third-place game in New York. At 5 p.m. today, ESPN2, Maui Invitational, Purdue vs. Gonzaga, quarterfinal held in Honolulu. At 5.30 p.m., CBSSN, Greenlight Sunshine Slam, Florida State versus UNLV Beach Bracket Semifinal, played in Dayton Beach, Florida. 6 p.m. today, FS1, Fort Myers Tip-Off, Virginia versus Wisconsin. This is a semifinal, played in Fort Myers, Florida. 7 p.m. tonight, ESPNU, SAA TVA Empire Classic, TBD Championship in New York. And also, SECN, St. Joseph's at Kentucky. 8 p.m. tonight, CBSSN, Greenlight Sunshine Slam, Colorado versus Richmond, Beach Bracket Semifinal, played in Dayton Beach, Florida. 8.30 p.m., FS1, Fort Myers Tip-Off, SMU versus West Virginia Semifinal, Fort Myers, Florida. 9 p.m. tonight, ESPNU. Maui Invitational, Kansas versus Chaminade, C-H-A-M-I-N-A-D-E, quarterfinal played in Honolulu. And at 10.30 p.m. tonight, CBSSN, SoCal Challenge, Bradley versus Tulane, Surf Division, semifinal. San Juan Capistrano, California. At 11.30 p.m. tonight, ESPN 2, Maui Invitational, UCLA versus Marquette. It is a quarterfinal, and it will be played in Honolulu. And going to Tuesday, Tuesday at 1 a.m., CBSSN SoCal Challenge, California versus UTEP, Surf Division. It's a semifinal, San Juan Capistrano, California. And moving to college basketball, this is for women, uh, the women's group, um, at 12 p.m. on Tuesday, ESPN2, Battle for Atlantis, TBD, Championship, Nassau in the Bahamas. Um, I think TBD means to be determined. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, that Jeff says that's right. Um, okay, so... That was uh, Nassau in the Bahamas is where it would be played. Um, Tuesday, 2.30 p.m., ESPNU. Um, Battle 4, Atlantis to be determined. Third place game, Nassau in the Bahamas is where it will be played. Also at 2.30, uh, no, I'm sorry, NFL football at 8.15 p.m., ABC and ESPN, Philadelphia, at Kansas City. Also at 8:15 p.m. ESPN2, Philadelphia at Kansas City, Manning cast, and I don't know what that means, but you probably do. And then for uh, the men's soccer, um, this is still Tuesday, I assume. It's 2:30 a.m. FS1 is FIFA, F I F A. U17 World Cup group stage, Ecuador versus Brazil, round of 16, Sukarta, Indonesia, Surakarta, Indonesia. okay At 6.45 a.m., FS2, FIFA, U17, World Cup group stage, Spain versus Japan, round of 16, Surakarta, Indonesia. At 2.30 p.m., FS2, UEFA Euro Qualifying Group Stage, Ukraine versus Italy, Group C, Uh, Leverkusen and Germany. I'm not sure if it's played in Germany. Uh, Yeah, I guess. Must be Italy and Germany playing in Germany. Uh, And the final one is at 7 p.m. on Tuesday. TNT, uh, CONCACAF, Nations League. Trinidad and Tobago versus U.S. quarterfinal, leg two, Port of Spain in Trinidad. And now we'll go to Jeff, who really knows what sports is about.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Drake is going to play North Dakota State in the FCS playoffs. The Drake football team learned its opening round opponent for its first-ever FCS playoff game, uh, on Sunday, FCS stands for the Football Championship Series, uh, where schools that are not in the Power Five conferences play a tournament to determine a national champion. The Bulldogs will head north to take on North Dakota State, whose record is 8-3 and three and 5-3 and three in the Missouri Valley. <clears throat> in a first-round matchup that will kick off from the Fargo Dome at 2.30 p.m. on Saturday, the twenty-fifth, Drake, who's eight and three and eight and zero in the Pioneer League, completed a perfect run through the PFL to earn its first FCS playoff bid <clears throat> after a thirteen nine win in at Butler on Saturday. The Bulldogs have won eight games and claimed the the uh, Pioneer League title for the first time since twenty twelve. Drake had not won an outright. PFL title since 2004 until this season. Northern Iowa, their football team loses at home in their regular season finale. Cam Miller accounted for three touchdowns and Cole Payton scored on runs of 60 and 23 yards to help FCS number nine North Dakota State beat Northern Iowa 48-27 on Saturday. North Dakota State, as we just learned, will be Drake's opponent in the playoffs next Saturday. The win likely seals an at-large berth into the playoffs. North Dakota State is uh, has made 13 straight playoff appearances, the third longest streak in history. Miller threw a 36-yard touchdown pass to Eli Green to open the scoring, then ran for a 1-yard score to make it 14-3 at the end of the first quarter and hit Rajah Nelson for a 15-yard touchdown to make it 21-3 with 13.51 to play in the first half. Cole Wisniewski picked off a pass at the 25, raced up the left sideline to the other 20 where he was cut inside and then broke three, three would-be tacklers on his way to the end zone for a 75-yard pick six. That made it 48 to 20 with 11.59 remaining in the game. Miller finished 17 of 22 passing for 238 yards and two touchdowns. And Nelson finished with six receptions for 113 yards. Theo Day Passed for 342 yards and two touchdowns with four interceptions, two by Oscar Benson for Northern Iowa, who finished with a record of six and five, five and three in the league. Carol, what does Dear Abby have to say today?
3: Ah, uh, well, in men's wrestling, Hawkeye's icon Lee qualifies for Olympic trials. Three former Hawkeye wrestlers <clears throat> made noise. At Bill Farrell Memorial Invite in New York City on Saturday. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Jeff just reminded me. It's time for Dear Abby. Oh, my goodness. You can't miss Abby. Thanks, Jeff. Okay. One way to honor a somber event is by performing a good deed. Dear Abby... I was blessed to work for President John F. Kennedy at the White House. I'm committed to honoring his memory on the 60th anniversary of his death on November 22nd, 1963, in gratitude for the life of such an inspiring leader who promoted world peace. On November 22, 2023, we are asking people in America and throughout the world to make, take the initiative and make a promise to do a good deed as a group or an individual and to make a positive difference. By spreading love, hope, and peace by supporting the poor, caring for the sick, feeding the homeless, assisting the disabled, protecting refugees, planting a tree to help curb climate change, improving the general welfare of children, promoting the common good, praying for peace. Thank you, Abby, for spreading this message. And uh, it is signed, Carmela. La Spada, founder of No Greater Love, Incorporated. Abby says, Dear Carmela, thank you for helping me make my readers aware of such a positive endeavor. Readers, a generous act is like a pebble in a pond. Its ripples spread endlessly outward. Second letter, Dear Abby, several of our grandchildren have had weddings in the last few years, along with showers and receptions. They all had plans to move into residences of their own. The shower gifts were household items, nothing extravagant, but nice. Our granddaughter, another granddaughter, is now planning to be married in the next few months, and she wants all the things the previous grandkids wanted. Her parents will only go so far. This granddaughter and her fiancé have agreed to live with the groom's recently widowed mother, who has a fully furnished home and a spare bedroom. The newlyweds may have a bedroom to decorate, but the rest of the house belongs to someone else. Packing up gifts for storage will require a place to put them because other family members do not have spare room. How do we have a normal shower for a couple who won't have room for their gifts? Renting a unit can get expensive. By the way, The bride does have a job and income, but the groom is currently unemployed. Signed, won't fit in Kentucky. Deer won't fit, says Abby. Forgive me if this seems judgmental, but more practical than figuring out where this young couple is going to store the loot would be for them to concentrate on his finding a job. It would also be a good idea for them to have a premarital counseling session before she moves in with his mother to be sure they're in on the same page regarding money, children, problem solving, and a myriad of other things that can ruin a marriage. For this shower, consider showing the couple with good, showering the couple with good wishes and gifts of cash for them to invest until they're ready to use it. And that is dear Abby for today. And we'll go back to Jeff.
2: Thanks, Carol, and that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Jeff Cassett. My partner at the microphone has been Carol Lockard. Earlier, you heard from Rachel Mithelman and Twyla Glenn. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.